This morning as we wrap up the four sermon series we've been doing, looking at Peter's sermon in Acts 2 following Pentecost, we're going to continue to look at those two questions that frame the passage. In chapter 2, verse 12, the people who've been struck by the fact that the message of the gospel has been proclaimed to them in their own languages call out, what does this mean? And then today, as we focus on the end of the sermon, and Peter has communicated what it means, they cry out, brothers, what shall we do? And the thing that I want us to think about before we go into prayer is that interaction with God always changes us. So when we meet God, he works. So let me open us in prayer. Father, we do come to you recognizing that you are one who does work and that as we engage with you, as we see you, as we hear you, as we watch your work, you change us. You are always redemptively at work. And you are redemptively at work in us. And so as we come to this passage this morning, we pray that that would be true. Shake us. As we've spoken in the first sermon, in the giving of the Holy Spirit, we ask, Lord, that you would do that work of bothering us by the presence of the Spirit. That we would recognize that you are at work, both for our good, but that you are also at work through us for kingdom good. And so we pray this morning that as we consider that question, what shall we do? That you would bother us, that you would move us, that you would equip us and that you would use us for kingdom ministry. That you would also, Lord, fit us for fellowship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to read the passage again. This is the sermon that Peter preached as he had the people gathered who had seen the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So beginning in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, And give ear to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So I want to recap again what we've covered briefly in the first three sermons, because I think that's important for us to understand what was in the mind of the people in Jerusalem as they said, what shall we do? Again, in the first sermon, we looked at the fact that God poured out his spirit. And it's remarkable to think to whom he poured out his spirit. Everyone. He goes through the list. He talks about your sons and your daughters. He talks about young men and old men. He talks about male and female servants. And then he says... I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And in the end, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's completely inclusionary. Nobody's kept out. And we talked about the fact that there are probably people we may want to keep out, people with whom we're uncomfortable, and yet it is completely inclusionary. But we also talked about the fact that the spirit is not given simply for our encouragement, for our good, for our blessing. The Spirit bothers us and moves us forward in kingdom ministry. We have to keep in focus that it is always and ever kingdom. We talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus, that death could not hold him. He sacrificially laid down his life 
for the purpose of redeeming us. And that's the heart of our relationship with God. In the garden, God created Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve were without sin until they sinned. And then God gave the promise of redemption, which he fulfills in Jesus. And we have the privilege not only of being redeemed, but being able to look and see how God redeemed us, the price he paid, the love he demonstrates. Last week, as we looked at the thought that Jesus is Lord and anointed Messiah, the chosen one, we recognize that he's not an advisor. He's not a counselor. He's Lord. What he says is true. What he asks is a command. And we looked a moment at the idea that the reason it's so difficult for us to recognize that, that all-encompassing lordship of Christ is because he's not simply a lord who lords it over us. In fact, he teaches his disciples. It is not about you having power. You are not to be leaders for your own blessing any more than I am lord for my own blessing. He's a lord who serves. And in fact, what the people in Jerusalem had just observed was the fact that the Lord was the one who died for our sins. And so it's difficult in some ways to recognize that power and authority of Christ when it is Christ who pays the price for our disobedience. And yet it is not the kind of loophole that allows us to be able to say it doesn't matter. What it does is it drives us to recognize why we love Jesus. And out of that love, why we obey. Which is why the quote on the beginning at the top of the worship folder is so important. Fear-based repentance... A repentance that comes because we are consumed with the reality of Jesus as Lord who is going to exercise authority without grace makes us hate ourselves. Joy-based repentance, a repentance that says, I'm safe. I am not at risk. Causes us to hate sin. And so today, I want to take us to that place where the people of Jerusalem come face to face with reality. They've recognized the lordship of Jesus. They've recognized that they have watched his ministry. They have watched his experience in Jerusalem. They have seen him crucified. They recognize that the disciples have communicated he rose from the dead. And now they've seen the Spirit poured out in a miraculous way that led to them hearing the reality and the content of the gospel in their own languages. Which is why they came and started by saying, what does it mean?
Luke tells us they were cut to the heart. I want you to think of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, as he sees the Lord high and exalted, lifted up on his throne. And Isaiah's response is, woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. That's the experience of the people in Jerusalem as they recognize the reality of what Peter has proclaimed. Oh, my goodness. Jesus. This man we've seen. This man we watched die. This man we've heard rose from the dead wasn't just a man. He's the Lord. And my sin, my actions, in their case, they may have been amongst the people who cried out, crucify him. That's not true for us. And E.C. has said as he began this series in Acts, there are some things that happen in history here that do not get repeated. But there are some things that continue. And so as we look at repentance, as we look at conviction, those are things that happened in a unique way for these people in Jerusalem. They saw Jesus. They heard his teaching. They watched him die, and they saw him rise. But brothers and sisters, we experience Jesus. And so as they recognize their sin, there is a moment for them where they come to conviction. What must we do? We must experience conviction. And in our own lives, there is a time for each of us where we come to that moment of conviction in a fresh way at the point of our recognizing the reality of Christ and our conversion to faith. There is that initial conviction that says, oh my goodness, like Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I recognize that there is an all-powerful, an all-present, an all-holy God in whose presence I live. There is that initial repentance. There is that sense of, oh my goodness, he's not merely Lord, he's Redeemer. But like the quotes on the front of the worship folder say, repentance isn't a one-time act. Conviction isn't a one-time experience. We come each week to worship, and together we confess our sin. Because even though we have come to that place of being justified and being declared righteous because of the work Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, we continue to sin. There's a battle that rages within us. And so we have that wonderful gift of repeated repentance. It's not a one-time act. It's a language we must be fluent in speaking. Conviction is an experience moment by moment. In, in Lamentations, we read, morning by morning, your mercies are new. 
But the reality is it's moment by moment your mercies are new. Because moment by moment my sins continue. And so I want us to develop the skill of conviction. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. That's what this passage is all about, the giving of the Spirit. And the Spirit is given not only to bother us into kingdom work, but to convict us and to comfort us. I want you to think about the fact that we exist in a, in a relationship with God where we don't have to go to heaven and see him high and exalted the way Isaiah did in his temple in order to experience the presence of God. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to go to the temple. We are the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? That's a crisis. A few decades back, people used to run around with these bracelets that had WWJD on them. Some of you remember them. Some of you may have worn them. Others of you may do retro and wear them still. Stood for what would Jesus do? The reality is not a lot of what I do. And so there's this crisis And one of the ways that I think I watch myself and I believe I watch you deal with that crisis is denial. I'm just living life. I'm not really thinking about the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells me and that it's not just what would Jesus do, but it's what is the Spirit at work in me to do? How is he bothering me to righteousness? How is he bothering me to kingdom ministry? But that's a worthwhile thought to contemplate. It's a bit troubling. Because we then have to live with the fact that there is a constant experience of conviction. What would Jesus do? Not what I just did. And so what do I do with that realization? Well, I repent. There's a quote that's also on the front of the page from Matthew Henry, and I'm going to read it to you so you don't have to turn to it. Part of... Conviction is a responsive confession. Matthew Henry says, many mourn for their sins. So think about that for a moment. When you experience your sin, is there sorrow? Probably. When you recognize the reality of God, the reality of the Spirit's presence in your life, and the honest truth of your sin, undoubtedly there is a sorrow you experience. But Matthew Henry continues, Many mourn for their sins that do not truly repent of them. Weep bitterly for them. They weep for their sin and yet continue in love and league with them. There's a problem we have, and Henry puts his finger on it. There is a dichotomy at war within us. I recognize the truth of God's holiness, but I also recognize the slavery I have to sin. Packer has another quote on the front. Repentance is more than just sorrow for the past. That goes back 
to Henry's weeping for sin. Repentance is more than just sorrow for the past. Repentance is a change of mind and heart, a new life of denying self and serving the Savior as king in self's place. I raised five kids. A couple of them, three of them are here today. <clears throat> I have heard my shares, and in fact, if I intend to be honest, I will have to own the fact that I have said my share. Of, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? If you think about what you say or what you as the one who's offering forgiveness hear when that's said, the thrust of what you're expressing or hearing is can we just forget about it and make it all better? Can we just go on? That's the heart of what these two quotes are about. I don't want to deal with the reality of my sin. I don't want to do the hard work of change. I simply want to be in a place of being able to carry on. I want to go back to normal. I want to go back to status quo. We get to a point in our Christian lives where it becomes much more an issue of how do I function rather than do I understand the reality of the gift that I've been given? Do I understand the reality of forgiveness, of redemption, of sanctification? What must we do? Ken Sandy is a man who's written a book called um, Peacemaker. And he has a really helpful tool in that book called The Seven A's of Confession. For those of you who are visiting, you may not have ever heard that. For those of you who are regulars and have heard me preach before, you've heard this many times. But I'm going to go through it again. Because it's an incredibly helpful tool to remind us of what the process of repentance is. The first A is to address everyone involved. I'm sorry, will you forgive me is all about let's keep this contained, let's keep it secret, let's put it under the rug, let's act as if it never happened. Address everyone involved opens it up and says, I'm not afraid, I'm not ashamed, I'm not going to hide, I'm going to address this with everyone who needs to know because everyone who's experienced it needs to know. It's that battle against secrecy. It's that battle against let's just sweep it under the rug. It is we need to face this. We need to change. Avoid if, but, maybe. That's the second A. We're so tempted in our confessions to qualify, to minimize, to limit, to contain. If I did that, I'm sorry. Well, why am I saying anything about it? when I'm not certain I did it. Yeah, I did that, and it was wrong, but... I'm sorry, there are no buts. Luke 6, 45 says, Out of the fullness of my heart, I sin. Yes, there's provocation, but provocation isn't cause. I'm living in circumstances. So Herod... Herod had the provocation of Salome doing a dance and the shame of failing to fulfill his promise. But Herod chose 
to execute John. He was not coerced. He was provoked. And we face that provocation frequently. But we have to recognize that whatever provocation we experience is not cause. So I can't say, but you made me do it. I'm sorry. I either sin and confess my sin, or I don't sin. There is no qualification. Maybe. Maybe your opinion of what I did was right. No. Avoid if, but, maybe. If I'm going to confess, I need to confess with honesty and transparency that this is my sin. The third A is to admit specifically. And there's two components to that. The first is I can only admit what's mine. I can't admit your sin. Now, there are those of us in the world who are what I would call guilt eaters. Codependence. Lots of different language for it. But we want to eat everybody's sin, because honestly, if I eat your sin, it's much easier for us to be at peace, to sweep it under the rug, to not have to really deal with it, because I don't have to deal with it. You know that I can't. But you don't have to deal with it, and you like me taking it for you. The determining factor of whether I can confess a sin is, can I repent and change? I'm sorry, but I can't change your anger. I can't change your deceptions. I can't change your greed. I can't change your pride. Now, I certainly can deal with mine. And that gets us to the second component of admit specifically, which is I have to admit the specifics of my sin. Not just what's mine, but the specifics, because I can't change a generality. If I say, I'm sorry that I acted in anger. Okay, well, I've named the sin at least but there's nothing I'm going to be able to do about it because anger is a generality and there is no place for me to get traction. However, if I go to the step of saying, I'm sorry that I acted in anger against you when I use this tone of voice and I use these words and I, I use this facial expression on Tuesday when we were talking about fill in the blank, I can change my words. I can change my tone of voice. I can change how I deal with you on that topic. The fourth A is to apologize. I've harmed you. I've done damage to you. Our relationship is ruptured. I need to care about what you experience. I'm not trying, I'm not trying just to get away from the reality of the distance between us. I'm actually trying to deal with the circumstances. I'm repenting. The fifth is to accept the consequences. It goes hand in hand with an apology. I did damage. The state of our relationship is largely dependent upon my behavior. And I need to accept the distance. I need to accept the things that flow from what I've done. It's not your fault that you're distant. It's mine because I sinned against you. And I need to address that. I need to welcome that. And I need to deal with it. The sixth is to alter your behavior. If I, if I accept the consequences, part of what I need to do is change. I can't act the same way again and again and again and again. 
I need the Holy Spirit to work in me to bring about the change that Jesus is doing in the sanctification. He's working in me. Galatians 3.3, Paul has talked about how we receive the Spirit. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And obviously, we're justified by faith. We receive the Spirit that Jesus has given to us by belief and repentance and baptism. Not that baptism does that, but baptism is an act of obedience that is an outflow of our repentance. But we receive the Spirit by faith. Then he goes on, having, having begun by the Spirit, are you being made perfect? Another way of translating that word, talao, is complete. Are you being finished by the flesh? In other words, by my effort, my works. No. I began by the Spirit, I continue by the Spirit. My justification is by faith, and my sanctification is by faith. Now, I cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in me. I do work of change. But it's the Spirit who empowers that which is why it's so important that God gives the Spirit to all who come to Him. Seventh, so we've done address everyone involved, avoid if, but, maybe, admit specifically, apologize, accept the consequences, alter your behavior, and then lastly, ask for forgiveness. It cannot be, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I'm sorry doesn't cover those first six steps. There's a process at work here. There is a redemptive work of God to bring about change. So, how do we respond? We are experiencing conviction. I'm a sinner and I've done wrong. Other passages beyond Isaiah 6 is Psalm 32, Psalm 51. They talk about what it looks like to come to conviction of sin. I confess, which is what we've just talked about with the seven A's of confession. I repent. I change. It's not simply feeling sorrow for my sin. It's dealing with the reality of my sin. And I believe the only way that I can experience conviction and survive, the only way that I can confess, and that's what Keller's talking about in his quote, repentance of fear versus a repentance of joy, the only way I can confess is to recognize the reality that Jesus has accomplished redemption. He has honestly and truly saved me, and my sin is no longer mine to pay for. The larger quote on the bottom of the worship folder is also Keller, and I want to read that to you here. In religion, and he's making a distinction between religion and gospel. In religion, our only hope is to live a, good li a life good enough to require God to bless us. Think about that for a moment. Our only hope is to live a life good enough that requires God to bless us. So every instance of sin and repentance is therefore traumatic, unnatural, and threatening. Only under great duress do religious people admit they've sinned, because their only hope is their moral goodness. When you're convicted, what's your response? Is it freedom or terror? In the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit that we are flawed because we know we won't be cast off if we confess the true depths of our sinfulness. Our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own. 
So it is not as traumatic to admit our weaknesses and lapses. Jesus has saved me. My status is secure. I'm safe. And so the reality is, when I believe and I'm convicted, I can confess and bring my need to the cross because Jesus has already said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now think about that for a moment. Who is this who says that? Who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you? It's the one who was forsaken and rejected on the cross. It's the one who went to Gethsemane, recognizing that what was facing him in his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, was the severing of the Trinity. The Father and the Spirit poured out their wrath upon the Son, and he experienced that sense of forsakenness as he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he took my sin. And the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. God and man in one person who could bear that wrath as a human, but who could live that righteous life as God and man in one person. And Jesus knew what he was about to experience, which is why he wept tears and needed the angels to be sent to comfort him. So I believe. But on top of that, as I recognize this Jesus who has taken these lengths to save me, I respond in love. Jesus says in John 14, as he's going from the Lord's Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He's not saying, keep my commandments so that you can claim a relationship with me. He's saying, I am doing this work to establish relationship that has been severed by your sin. And when you recognize who I am, what I've done, the sin you've committed against me, and my redemptive work to restore you, love me. And in that love, obey. So what's our obedience? Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So he brings us into that household. He brings us into that relationship. And the rest of our life is lived as temples of the Holy Spirit, bothered to build kingdom. Brothers and sisters, your lives are not yours. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I am bought with a price. I am free to lay my life down for the glory and the honor of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, it's it's honestly impossible for us to recognize the reality of who you are. But what you have revealed to us is astounding. It's amazing. You have redeemed us.
You have loved us with a love that does not end. As Paul prays, I pray that you would know the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of a love that has no limits. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives now with a recognition of the love you have poured out on us, the promise never to leave nor forsake us. And when we begin to think because of the circumstances of our lives that maybe you have, that you would bring us to repentance, that you would bring us to conviction that you have a love that has no limits. And that if we don't see that love clearly, it's not that the love has ceased, it is that our sight is too small. And I pray that you would expand our vision. Help us to see you. Help us to delight in the love that you've given to us. And give us the freedom to pour out our lives as an act of worship for you, to live lives of obedience, to live lives of conviction, repentance, confession, to live lives of love for Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.